It's time now for the complete story with Rich Bot, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now, here is Rich Bot with today's complete story. You know, folks, we are living in strategic times, and there's nothing more important in Washington, in my view, that's happening right now than the Senate confirmation hearings for the next Supreme Court Justice of the United States. And with us here, here on The Complete Story is Senator Ben Sass, who sits on that committee. Welcome, Senator Sass. Hello, Rich. Thank you for having me on. You know, these uh, confirmation hearings began yesterday, and you had a powerful statement that you delivered to the committee, and I'd like for our listeners to hear that right now. This is a special moment in the life of our republic. We have an opportunity to, opportunity to stand back for more than 200 years of our history to evaluate our civic health and to recommit ourselves to a government that is intentionally limited, to powers that are intentionally distinguished and divided. That's what these next few weeks are actually about. Arguably the most important thing the U.S. Senate will do this year is confirm the next Supreme Court justice. I want to focus my opening remarks around the simple, simple image of a judge's black robe. It's a strange thing that judges wear robes. You people are odd. Um, But it isn't something that we should just look past as an odd convention. It's something that we should look right at. It's not some relic from history that people wore long ago in an era of formality, like a powdered wig. So why do the robes exist, unfashionable and um, unattractive as they often are? The reasons are better summed up by a current sitting judge than I might be able to put them. And so I quote, Donning a robe doesn't make me any smarter, but the robe does mean something. It's not just that I can hide the coffee stains on my shirt. It serves as a reminder of what's expected of us, what Burke has called the cold neutrality of an impartial judge. It serves, too, as a reminder of the relatively modest station we're meant to occupy in a democratic society. In other countries, judges might wear scarlet. Here, we're told to buy our own plain black robes, and I can attest to the standard choir outfit of the local uniform supply store as a good deal. Ours is the judiciary of an honest black polyester, close quote. The author of these insightful words sits before us, Judge Neil Gorsuch, and that statement is an excellent lens through which to view the work of the committee this week and indeed the work of the court over the next century and beyond. I want to make three simple overlapping points about that judge's black robe. One, it changes the way that our eyes see the court. Two, it reiterates the calling of a judge to the judge. And three, it gives us a special opportunity to teach our kids something about our, about their constitution, the enduring paper that defines what our government can and cannot do. First then, how does it change the way we see the court? When you look at the nine justices sitting together in their robes, they blend in with one another. It's hard to tell them apart if you squint, and thus it calls attention to the office rather than to the person. That's because when the judge puts on his or her robe, it forces their personalities into the background so that we can focus on the important but the modest job that they have to do, which is to drill down on facts and law. Facts are objective. They don't change based on your personality. They're evaluated against written objective laws, not against what the judge wishes the law. Someone famously said that, quote, empathy, close quote, is an essential ingredient in arriving at a just decision. This belief is well meant, but it's very foolish. For standing before a court, your gender, your skin, your bank account cannot decide your fate. 
In the same way, a judge's race, class, and gender should not decide your fate. Empathy is actually not the role of a Supreme Court justice. It is, in a sense, our role, for we are men and women who've been hired and can be fired by the American people to empathize. We're to identify with the hopes and the struggles of 320 million Americans. But the judge, instead, has a different job, to faithfully and dispassionately apply the law to the facts of the particular case. The judge's robe is there to remind the judge and us of that, that if the facts are on your side, it shouldn't matter which judge you sit before. Our ideal is one where you can trade out one judge for another judge, and you should get the same outcome. This is the heart of what we mean when we say that we believe in the rule of law, not of men or of women or of black or white or rich or poor. We are not to be ruled by a judge's passions or by a judge's empathy or by a judge's policy preferences. Here's the second thing that the black robe is supposed to do. It's supposed to reiterate the calling of the judge back to the judge. By way of loose analogy, many people across our country sat in church pews yesterday morning and listened to someone preach from behind a big wooden pulpit wearing a robe. Why the pulpit? Why the robe? Because these things make it harder to see the preacher. They help us all understand that that, yesterday morning, for those of us in that tradition, knew that it was not about the messenger, but about the message that was being passed on from above. It was also to remind the minister of the same cloaking. Likewise, a good judge on the bench knows that, so don't make it about you. I said that it's only a loose analogy because, of course, the job of a Supreme Court justice is absolutely not to deliver some eternal word from God. It's rather to interpret a man-made written constitution as objectively and faithfully as they can, inserting their opinions as little as possible. When you put on your robe, you're cloaking your personal preferences. You're cloaking your partisan views. There's not a red robe for Republicans. There's not a blue robe for Democrats. We issue here only black robes. This brings us to the third and final point which is that the judge's robe is also to teach our kids how they should understand their constitution. As all of us learned in Schoolhouse Rock, the judiciary is not only a separate branch of government from the president and the Congress, but it's also a co-equal one. We have different functions, but we have the same responsibility to be upholding and to teach the constitution. As a co-equal, the court can examine whether the actions of the other two branches are in fact unconstitutional. Time and again, at important moments in our nation's history, the court has struck down laws passed by the Congress or put a stop to a president's executive actions. Here's what that means. The primary job of the Supreme Court is not to uphold the will of the majority of the moment. The primary job of a Supreme Court justice is not to reflect the popular opinions of the day. That might sound surprising. Don't we live in a democracy where the majority is supposed to rule? The answer to that question is only a very qualified yes, for there are critical limits to that statement. The Constitution is a decidedly and intentionally anti-majoritarian document. The Constitution exists to protect our rights and our liberties, even when we might hold unpopular views. And the role of the Supreme Court in protecting those rights and liberties sometimes precisely to frustrate the will of the majority. Think about how the Constitution deals with religion and public opinion. The First Amendment 
prohibits the government from establishing any state religion, and it guarantees that every citizen can worship or not worship however their conscience dictates. If, however, at some moment polling showed a 51% popular desire in this country to pass a law making church attendance mandatory or to subsidize a particular religious denomination, the Supreme Court would rightly strike down such flawed laws. This is because in the Constitution, we decided that we would limit our own power. We, the people, decided in the founding of this republic that we would restrain our own majoritarian impulses. By enacting the Constitution, we intentionally decided to tie our own hands so that there are certain things that a majority can never do, like invade someone's conscience. And if the majority, in its arrogance, should at some point in the future seek to cross that line, the Supreme Court will rightfully shout no. When Congress passes an unconstitutional law, it is in fact the Congress that is violating the long-term will of the people. For the judiciary is there to assert the will of the people, as embodied in our shared Constitution, over and against that unconstitutional, but perhaps temporarily popular law. Each branch serves the people, but in unique ways. It is the job of the Congress and the President to act. It is the job of the court often to react. Each branch holds the others in check. Each branch faithfully seeks to uphold and teach the Constitution. Each branch serves the American people, but with distinct offices. When a Supreme Court justice puts on his or her robe, we don't want them confusing their job of other branches. We want them policing the structure of our government to make sure that each branch does its job, but only its job. Today, Judge Gorsuch sits in front of us wearing a suit and tie. Before he can put back on the black robe, he must answer this committee's questions. And I expect that Mr. Gorsuch, the citizen, has policy preferences. He probably has desired outcomes, but I don't know what they are. And that's a good thing. And I expect by the end of this week, it should be clear that Judge Gorsuch, the judge's judge, will faithfully embody the spirit of that black robe. For the American people deserve the comfort of a judiciary that is cold and impartial, not seeking to be super legislators. For if a judge seeks to be a super legislator, he or she should run for office so the American people can choose to hire them or fire them. But that is not the calling you have before us today. Thank you, and thank you to your family for being willing to endure uh, this calling and this service and this hearing. Okay, folks, and there you have Senator Ben Sass from yesterday delivering his opening statement there before the Senate Judiciary Committee, of which he is one of the members there. Now, Senator Ben Sass, as I can remind you, is this U.S. senator representing the great state of Nebraska. And if you remember correctly, he was elected in 2014 by a landslide, winning each of Nebraska's 93 counties and securing the, lar- the second-largest margin for a new senator in the history of the state. So, Senator Ben Sass, excellent, excellent uh, opening statement, and I'd like for you to give our listeners a sense of uh, what it's like there on the Judiciary Committee right now. 
Well, Rich, thank you again for having me on. And the Judiciary Committee is an important place to be today. It's an opportunity to serve the American people, but it's also a place that lots of moms and dads uh, listening to your program uh, can be watching this on C-SPAN or on C-SPAN reruns as a way to, to dive into civics with your kids, because Judge Gorsuch is a judge's judge. He is the kind of guy that the founders envisioned on the court. He understands what the judiciary is supposed to do, and that is not to confuse themselves with another super legislature that just happens to be unelected. So it's it's been a lot of fun there today, frankly. Hmm. Uh, you don't often associate the words Washington, D.C. and fun, uh, because usually there's so much contention uh, that doesn't get to substantive outcome. And today, Gorsuch is leading us to a better place. There's, there's a, still a lot of goofiness and shenanigans going on uh, on the committee as well. But overall, um, it's, a, it's a privilege to serve the people of Nebraska and the people of this country there, asking Judge Gorsuch some questions. And he's unpacking why the Constitution is our fundamental shared law. Yes. Now, uh, Tony Perkins, our friend at uh, Family Research Council, said Judge Gorsuch's record over the past 14 years, especially on religious liberty, gives Americans every reason to believe he will make a fine Supreme Court justice. His reputation as a judge with integrity and dedication to the Constitution should be an encouragement to all Americans. Sure. Now, now, yesterday at the uh, the confirmation hearing, uh, I understand, you know, I imagine things went fairly smoothly, did they? Uh, yes. So yesterday was kind of like the uh, the national anthem part of a congressional hearing. We're, we're meeting all week on Gorsuch and the Senate Judiciary Committee, and all the senators made opening statements. Mm-hmm. And then in the afternoon, at the end of the day, uh, the judge got to make an opening statement as well. And then on day two, we've turned to questions. Every senator gets a first round of 30 minutes to interrogate uh, the judge, and then we'll get a second 20-minute round as well. So that, that takes you through days two and three. Now, the Fox News says the Supreme Court confirmation hearing for Neil Gorsuch is likely to take a sharp turn Tuesday after relatively smooth opening where uh, the senators get to ask their questions. And it says that the Senate Democrats on Tuesday, which is today, uh, get to raise their concerns. Uh, And uh, I'm sure they're going to raise concerns, but my goodness, his record is unassailable. It really is. So a couple of things. First of all, he's been on the uh, Tenth Circuit, U.S. Court of Appeals, for uh, 11 years now. I think he's written uh, or ruled on something like 2,700 cases. 97% of the time, he's gotten a unanimous group to go along with him. And another 2% of the time, uh, he's in the majority. So he's had 99% of the time when he's ruled on these 2,700 cases that he's been in the majority and 97% of that unanimous. There's just nothing that is partisan political hack about this guy. He's a judge. Now, what you have the Democrats trying to do, unfortunately, is ask all these outcomes-based questions. Um, They regularly are are pulling out this theme of, uh, do you rule enough for the little guy? And the image that keeps coming back to my mind is me as a dad. I have uh, three kids, ages uh, 15 down to five, and we do a lot of little league sports and travel hockey and wrestling at at our house. And I can't imagine calling a referee before a game, whether my kids were on a team that was favored or whether they were the underdog, and saying, hey, ref, I wonder if you could tell me, um, I don't care what the rules of the game are, and I don't care what color 
your jersey is, your sort of black and white, you know, zebra striped jersey. I wonder if you could promise me that you'll bias your judging and your officiating in, in on behalf of the shorter kids and the slower kids, uh, or that you'll make sure the underdog team has a chance to win. That's not what we want uh, a referee to do. What we want them to do is call the game dispassionately based on the rules. If there are rules that we don't like in our little league sports, or if there are rules that don't work well in the American legal system, Congress should change those rules. But what you shouldn't ask a judge to do is substitute their judgment for the law and try to bias the playing field and put on a jersey underneath their black and white stripes, put on a jersey of either the, you know, the Denver Broncos or the, the uh, Green Bay Packers, and then just sort of hide it underneath your black and white uh, ref's jersey. That's not what we want them to do. We want them to be a ref, and we want a judge to be a judge. And the reason that this seat is open currently is because of the uh, untimely death of uh, Justice Scalia. Uh, a, a, a lion on the Supreme Court and a terrific uh, judicial mind that uh, was very much along the lines of an originalist. In other words, you, you, you need to follow what the Constitution meant when they wrote it and apply it today. If somebody wants to change the Constitution, you can always amend it, and there's a process for that, but it's not up to the justices to amend the Constitution on their own, but to strictly apply it as it was written. So well said. Exactly right. And and just, um, you know, paid tribute to Justice Scalia a few times in recent speeches, and then at this hearing, uh, where he says one of the great contributions of Justice Scalia's public life has been the fact that he reaffirmed that core distinction between legislators and judges. If judges want to try to make policy as opposed to serve as dispassionate judges, trying to give everyone equal justice in front of the law, that's a certain that's a certainly a, that is certainly a legitimate thing for one of them to want to do, and then they should run for office so the American people can hire them or fire them. Um, but when you're a judge, you have lifetime tenure. The appointment is until your death or retirement, and so you don't get to make policy and therefore be unaccountable to the American people. You're supposed to simply judge, and uh, I think that's what Judge Gorsuch wants to do, and it's been fun to see him paying tribute to Justice Scalia in, in his time before the committee. Now, elections have consequences, and uh, that's why the good people of Nebraska sent you to Washington, D.C. to represent them. And uh, right now, the Republicans have, is it a 52-seat majority? Correct. Uh, 52 to, what is it, 48? Yes, there are uh, 46 Democrats and two independents that caucus with them, people like Bernie Sanders. But... Um, but there's also this thing about a filibuster possibility. And uh, so in order to avoid a filibuster, isn't it likely that you would want several Democrats to vote in favor of just, uh, Justice Gorsuch as well. What's the likelihood of that? Yes. So um, to get past a filibuster, to basically have a vote that says, let's stop talking about this in, in a certain amount of time and then have a vote on passage, you have typically needed 60 votes. It's an interesting thing. So when the Senate was first founded, the Constitution, by the way, leaves it to the Senate and to the House of Representatives for that matter as well, but for the Congress to determine its own rules. Right. When the country was first founded, there were 13 colonies and 13 states. Um, and so there were only 26 senators. And so early on, the Senate tried to do everything by unanimity. 
unanimity. You'd try to get everybody to agree before the Senate would take action. And that was embodying the founders' good and wise principle that we want to make it hard for the federal government to act. We divide and separate our powers, and they check and balance one another. Um, it used to require basic unanimity in the Senate. Over time, there was a new rule that said, well, once two-thirds of the senators agree, uh, then we'll decide to stop debating the topic and we'll move on to eventually having a yes or no vote. And so people would sometimes say yes to ending the debate, even though in the likely outcome vote they might not get their way, but they would say it's time to move on to another topic. Later, that rule was changed from 67 to only 60 votes. But what's happened increasingly in recent decades is people have decided to use that vote, which is supposed to be about filibustering or getting on to having a vote so we could get on to a new topic. They've used it as a way to just obstruct. And so it only takes 51 votes to finally accomplish anything in the Senate, but it has typically taken 60 votes to get off of the topic and get on to a vote so you can get to something else. And so I don't know how to vote count right now in terms of are there going to be more or less than eight Democrats voting with the, six, the 52 Republicans on this issue? But I, I can tell you this, um, that Judge Gorsuch is going to be confirmed. Uh, you know, it, it used to be that the Senate was trying to have a long, deliberative process about everything, and for good and for ill, mostly for ill. But um, Harry Reid changed a bunch of rules in 2013 to make the Senate move faster, which in the long term, I think, has the downside effect of making it easier for government to grow. But at the level of confirmation hearings, um, over time, it's seeming like a more and more majoritarian body. I hope that doesn't happen now. I hope what happens is that the Democrats admit that this guy is a wonderful uh, human being and a dispassionate, honorable judge who wants to follow the law, not make up new laws. And I hope we'll get more than 60 votes. But however it happens, I'm, I'm confident that Judge Gorsuch is going to be confirmed to the Supreme Court. Now, uh, judge, uh, judge Gorsuch, in his uh, previous uh, role in the court, he voted in favor of Hobby Lobby in the Hobby Lobby versus Sibelius case, and he also voted in favor of Little Sisters of the Poor. And so he's, he has a record of voting uh, to uphold religious liberty, and that should be very important for all, all of our listeners. Uh, I, I'm thinking of uh, what we can do. Certainly the most important thing that we can do is to vote for people like you that will support uh, Christian values, that will support a uh, constitutional view uh, there in Washington, D.C. But uh, rather than just sitting and watching this unfold before us on the television screen, uh, is there something that we should be doing? Certainly we should be praying, but is there something else people can do? Well, great. Rich. Uh, so yes, to prayer. Uh, my family and I covet uh, your prayers and your listeners' prayers. As you know, our three little kids live in Nebraska. I live there, and I commute every week to D.C. And in God's providence, since we uh, homeschool, I'm able to bring one of the three of them with me most weeks to D.C. And so that's great for them to stay engaged with Dad and Dad to be engaged in their education. But it's, uh, it's bumpy to try to live a life where every third or fourth week your little kids are traveling across the country with Dad to work. So we covet your prayers. We also want uh, you know, all your listeners to be engaged citizens, but I think that fundamentally the best way to be a great American uh, is to be a great parent. The best way to live out a life of gratitude to God by loving your neighbor in the public square is by raising your kids to be the 
that are productive, contributing citizens. And one piece of that is obviously civics education of our kids. And right now, you know, we live at a terrible time in terms of uh, lacking shared values and a shared sense of basic facts and the basic reality of what America is about. This is a, a republic that was built on the concept of limited government because we only want government to do the minimum number of things that are necessary to create a framework for ordered liberty so that families can live together, raising their kids, that the places where we worship, the places where we work, the places where we uh, do our philanthropy contribute to the Rotary Club, those are the centers of the world, not Washington. And so the only way for America to truly be great, again, is for our local communities and our families to be great and strong. And so raising our kids and taking civics education seriously is one of the greatest ways we can love our neighbor. Now, during this last presidential campaign, I told folks that I was voting with the hope of a pro-life Supreme Court. I was hoping that we would have a justice nominated to replace Scalia that would hold to the original intent of the Constitution and not try to read into it all of these other things that so oftentimes a liberal judge has done. And this is it, folks. This is our opportunity to have appointed a constitutionalist uh, a Supreme Court justice that's after the mold of uh, Scalia that would uh, uphold the Constitution as it was originally written. Uh, it, w- would you say that's correct? Yeah, I think we, just before I got on the phone with you, I'm sneaking out of the hearing to talk to you, um, Lindsey Graham was uh, doing some interesting uh, questioning of Judge Gorsuch, and Lindsey is the is a Republican senator from South Carolina, is the lead sponsor in the Senate of the pain-capable pro-life legislation that would say there are so many things about abortion that we should be solving as a community and as a nation that actually loves the weakest and most vulnerable among us, that does more to protect life. But how can we we not at least begin at the place that babies uh, in, in mom's tummy that are 20 weeks along, that are clearly capable, based on all of the scientific uh, data we have, clearly capable of feeling pain, such that when doctors have to do in utero surgeries on, on babies that are 20 weeks uh, along in the gestation um, pathway in, in mom, when you do surgery on them, you have to use anesthesia because they would suffer pain if you didn't. And Lindsay has a piece of legislation that says, at a bare minimum, why in the world haven't we done this? We're one of only seven nations on earth uh, that allow, you know, uh, all abortion all the time until 73 seconds before a baby's born. Um, This doesn't make any sense. And Lindsey Graham is laying out the argument for why this legislation should move right now. And he looked at Judge Gorsuch and he said, and by the way, your court or the court that you're going to serve on in the past has been the court that tried to stand in the way of the people being able to legislate. And I think it was just such a nice distinction that he drew so that we can move back to um, honoring life, which is, you know, first, simply the right thing to do. And second, the position of about 70 percent of Americans, if you ask the question in a way that has them understand what what we're actually talking about with these beautiful little um, creations, uh, creatures in God's image in mom's tummy. Yes, I was just up in your state a week or two ago for the Assure Women's Center annual banquet. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans was the special speaker, and it was just a fantastic event. And uh, the people there certainly understand what you're talking about. Amen. You know, you said uh, to uh, MSNBC's Morning Joe, there's no reason anybody should be voting against this guy. He should be confirmed 100 to 0. Yes. 
it's true. There, there's, <laughs> they don't have anything. The Democrats are trying to make up these crazy attacks. You know that it's it's like Judge Gorsuch supposedly kicked a puppy somewhere, and they're eventually going to find videotape evidence of it. I mean, there's there's no rhyme or reason to the lines of questioning that most of the Democrats are advancing, except that he believes in a constitution of limits, and he would believe in the oath that he's taking. And so they want to have an activist judge that tries to act as a second, a second opportunity for progressive liberal policies to be enacted. When they can't get them through the legislature, they'd like to get them through the courts. And obviously the judge doesn't believe in that. He believes in judging. And so you've got a few Democrats on the committee that are frustrated by that. And so they keep coming up with more and more hyperventilating attempts to say that there's something terrible about him. But it's pretty obvious that none of them even believe it when they ask the questions. Um, they just don't go anywhere. They trail off and then the next Democrat comes up and pursues some other line of attack. So I, he should be confirmed 100 to 0. So Senator Sass, what goes on behind the scenes? Do you have an opportunity to talk with the uh, senators on the other side of the aisle that are on the same committee to try to influence them as to how they're going to vote on confirmation? Yeah, I, I do. I try. I'm, I think I'm the third most conservative guy in the Senate by voting record, um, but I'm not a particularly partisan person because my whole life has never been about politics. Um, I, I think I'm one of five people in the Senate who's never been a politician before. I've never run for any office before. So I don't start with my partisan lenses and my partisan label as being very near to my identity. I'm a dad and a husband and a Christian and a Nebraskan and a football addict and uh, a whole bunch of I'm temporarily a public official. But but my Republican Party affiliation is not near the core of my identity. So even though I'm a very conservative guy in my policy preferences and my voting record, I try to just treat people as people around here. And uh, in the gym in the morning, out of the 100 of us, there are about 20 of us who are pretty regular in the gym in the morning. We're about half and half Republicans and Democrats. And uh, I, I lean on them, and I twist a lot of arms. And I've, I've said to some of them this morning, uh, explain to me again why you're going to go out there and tell the TV cameras that Neil Gorsuch is an extremist when you and I both know you don't really believe him to be an extremist. Uh, and so it, right. there's a lot of jovial stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Well, God bless you, uh, Senator Ben Sass. And of course, it's uh, maybe jovial at times, but it, it's deadly serious uh, as well. And uh, so thank you for your faithfulness. And I want to thank the good folks from the state of Nebraska for electing you and sending you to Washington. And now you sit on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And we pray that you'll be uh, very influential and your voice will be heard. Uh, and uh, we want to pray for you. We want to pray for Judge Gorsuch. We want to pray for the committee. We want to pray for America. And, you know, uh, we are praying this year for a Great Awakening-style revival. This is the year to be bold. We don't know how much time we have left, but we want to use our religious liberty in a way that will be honoring to our Lord Jesus Christ and bring about revival, Lord willing. So thank you, Senator Ben Sass. We appreciate you being with us on today's Complete Story. That's all the time we have. This is Rich Bott, and we'll see you next time.